Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Louis, the movement for racial justice has reinvigorated the re-examination of school names in California, specifically those of historical figures whose past actions or beliefs were widely seen today as offensive or, in some cases, criminal. We'll talk to a parent and PTA president who helped drive a successful effort to have a Bay Area elementary school renamed from Wilson Elementary, named after former President Woodrow Wilson, to Michelle Obama Elementary, and we'll talk to a historian about what this renaming movement is all about. But before we get to that, let's talk about a big piece of news this week. In a long-anticipated but unexpected decision, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected President Trump's efforts to rescind the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program known as DACA. Because of that 5-4 decision, hundreds of thousands of young immigrants can breathe easier. Now they'll be able to stay in college or working without fear of being deported, well, at least for now. To discuss the case and its implications, returning to Maria Blanco, the executive director of the UC Immigrant Legal Services Center at UC Davis. Maria was actually the founding director of the center, and it provides a wide range of legal services to immigrant students, a large share of whom are DACA students, not only at UC Davis, but all UC campuses. The last time we talked, I think it was on the train going up to Sacramento a few months ago. Yep. You weren't really expecting this decision to come out in a favorable way. Are you surprised by this decision? Absolutely. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I was surprised. I was really concerned that there would be a lot of deference paid to the administration's decision in the area of immigration, because that's kind of been a traditional area for the Supreme Court to stay out of matters is in the immigration area. And they would just say, that's for Congress, not for us, you know, end of story. So I was surprised that they decided to actually tackle it because they had to decide whether to take it on or not. They said yes. And then once they decided they would address the issues that were raised, I was surprised with how they addressed them, that they actually said to the administration, you did not do this in the proper way. Going forward, what does this mean? Because actually, DACA is deferred action. It means these students, they are still vulnerable to deportation. This is just a temporary status. Is this still a big deal? Oh, it's a huge deal. First of all, if you do have the deferred action, unless for some reason you commit some heinous crime or something, you're not going to get deported. It really does protect you from deportation. It's a true deferral of action. And yes, it's temporary and you have to renew it every two years. And what we've just finished living through shows how precarious it is, right? That we had to go all the way through the courts up to the Supreme Court and everybody was on edge because it wasn't a permanent solution. Really what's required is some kind of permanent solution You know, it's the DREAM Act that people have been talking about for years. But in the meantime, it really does offer some protection and some ability to continue to work, get loans, buy houses, you know, and live a pretty normal life. So does this resolve the case before the November elections, Maria? Is there time for the Trump administration to rewrite its case and go to court 
and uh, have a decision before November? Will the next election pretty much decide what happens to DACA? I think the next election is going to decide what happens to DACA. I think the the administration can try and try their hand at rescinding it with a different approach. I think it'll then still be in the courts. And there's no way the Supreme Court can decide this before November of next year. They're off the entire summer and they don't reconvene until October. And the term ends at the end of June in a couple of weeks. So I think this will not reach or be decided by the Supreme Court before the election. And in the meantime, what does it do for students who are going to school in the fall? It is possible that this decision means that people that were not able to apply for DACA because the administration ended it and the courts only allowed renewals of DACA to go forward, it's very possible that this decision opens it up for people to apply for the first time, which means incoming students at UC, CSU, community colleges will be able to apply for the first time. I think one of the things that was really surprising and kind of inspiring in some ways, that as the Trump administration has ratcheted up enforcement against undocumented immigrants and really was going after the whole DACA program, you'd think that people would kind of withdraw and go into the shadows. But many of these students actually came out and were unafraid to be identified. And somehow this may have, in fact, strengthened and emboldened this group of immigrants that really really didn't want anybody even to know that they were undocumented. It really is amazing. It's, it's, it's a cliche, but they really are inspiring. Their stick-to-itiveness, their, their courage, their sense of not just doing things for themselves, but doing things for others is really amazing. In fact, even the DACA recipients say, I don't want to just talk about me. I want to talk about the people who don't have DACA. You know, their ethics are so high and they're so courageous. It's really a remarkable group of activists. That was Maria Blanco, the executive director of the UC Immigrant Legal Services Center at UC Davis. Let's turn to the often contentious issue of renaming schools. Such efforts are accelerating across the country. The effort is closely tied to the nationwide movement to remove statues and other monuments to problematic figures from our nation's past. Debates are kicking up about schools named after Confederate generals and slaveholding presidents. Here in California, which was, of course, a state and part of the Union, there are only a couple of the former, and they're all named after General Braxton Bragg, He also has a town named after him, but there are plenty of schools named after Washington and Jefferson. Yeah, Don, I should mention uh, my kids attended Jefferson Elementary School at Berkeley about uh, 15 years ago, and my oldest son was in kindergarten. There was a big push to change the name from Jefferson to Sequoia School. The school actually voted to change the name, but then the uh, Berkeley School Board narrowly overturned that decision. But this week, the school board decided to change the name of Jefferson, haven't chosen a new name yet, as well as to look at Washington School. And if other schools do this, uh, this could create controversy in quite a lot of communities. There are 57 schools in California named after George Washington and 43 named after Thomas Jefferson. 
And uh, then you got a bunch of other founding fathers who were also slaveholders after whom schools are named. We could see quite a lot of controversy around this issue. Well, to discuss this issue, we have turned to a historian. We have on the line Lauren Croys, an associate professor of art history at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. As a historian, how do you look at naming or renaming of a school? What's the purpose or value in doing that? And is it just for the here and now for the students who are there or or to inspire students? Or or does it have a statement for future generations? How would you look at it? I think it does all those things. I would say that as a historian, I'm always so happy when we talk about renaming because I think it really encourages our community to engage with the past and with our concept of history in really complex ways. I didn't really like history as a kid because I thought it was just facts. I thought it was just things that we needed to memorize. But as I got older, I learned, and as became a historian, I learned it's a lot about interpretation. And there isn't always only one interpretation. We're always thinking through our past. We're always making our past anew. And debates about renaming really help us think through the ways that history and our understandings of it aren't static and we can't consider them as static. When we think about who we want to be represented by our schools, I think we can really think about history in deep and critical ways and teach also teach our kids to do that. Richmond recently renamed an elementary school from Woodrow Wilson Elementary to Michelle Obama Elementary. How do you decide when looking at a historical figure like Woodrow Wilson, who helped found the League of Nations and also was a racist, uh, how do you weigh those and decide whether or not that school, you feel comfortable going to that school and it should be named in your community? In a way, what we should do, I think, is let communities decide. I can tell the community what I know about Woodrow Wilson and what I know about Michelle Obama, but ultimately it's up to that community to figure out what's going to send a message of what they're proud of and what represents them as a group. Let me just push you on the converse. By renaming these schools and removing these historical figures, aren't we kind of burying the past? Doesn't this give us an opportunity to really deal with the past and engage with the past? I think it can, but I do think that we only do that when we're having these renaming debates. As we said before, usually we tend to forget that the name is a person and that the name is meant to honor someone and that it's not just like a random word. So it's during these moments of renaming that we're really, it's really possible to have a deep engagement with what that person stood for, to think about that full complexity. We've been speaking with Lauren Croys, an associate professor of art history at UC Berkeley. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Thank you. They're amazing people to name your school after. Just do some historical research. So to discuss a successful name change effort, we're pleased to have on the line Maisha Cole, She's a PTA president of a school in Richmond that was formerly known as Wilson Elementary after former President Woodrow Wilson, but now it's called Michelle Obama Elementary. Welcome. Thank you. You're on the PTA. Uh, What was the driving force here? Why did you push to change it to uh, Michelle Obama? We really pushed for the name change because our school was going through a major transition. It was in very, very bad disrepair, needed to be fully revamped. And we had been on the rebuild list for about 10 or 15 years. So our community came together, we went to the district, and we really pushed for our name to to rise to the top of the rebuild list and for the construction to begin. So we really played hand in hand with the district to get our school rebuilt. And so once we moved to our temporary site, 
some of the parents and I, you know, we were in discussing that we were going to have a brand new building and it was going to feel great for our children to walk into this brand new building and feel empowered. And we were thinking, well, maybe we should change the name. And, you know, we joked about a couple of different names and then the name Michelle Obama came up. And for some reason, that just felt good in our hearts. Um, we all felt that Michelle Obama reflected our our core values, you know, just her energy, her drive, and her determination. And so we were like, yeah, we should rename our school Michelle Obama. But at the point, we weren't really like super, super serious. So we kept talking about it. We spoke to other parents and some of the children in the association meetings. And then we decided, hey, Let's find out the process. Were concerns raised about the existing name, Woodrow Wilson? Or was it mainly to have a more affirmative name or one that really the students could identify with as well? Well, that's that's the key. We felt that the children in our community really didn't connect to Woodrow Wilson. They connected to the name Wilson, Wilson Elementary, the Wilson Tigers, but they didn't have a connection to the president and who he was and what he did. So we wanted them to have a connection to someone that looked like them, someone who came from the same neighborhoods like they grew up in. And we wanted someone who is active on a global level, on a on a local level, on a community level, someone who they can look to for inspiration. So that's why we determined that name. That's why Michelle Obama's name was chosen. Well, did the community, those who had gone to Wilson for, I'm assuming it's been around for decades, uh, did they have any attachment to the old name, Not perhaps not even knowing it was Woodrow Wilson, just Wilson, as you said? We found that some of the elderly community members, such as grandparents, came out to the community meetings and expressed their concern. They did have an attachment to the name. But once they started to talk about it, their attachment wasn't to the name. Their attachment was to their memories being at the school with their community. So it had nothing to do with the name. So after coming to the community meetings, they changed their opinion. They said, oh, well, that makes sense. We just wanted to make a change. And so they were stuck on it at first, but then they they came around. Will part of your curriculum be teaching about Michelle Obama uh, so that all students are aware of the school that they're going to and the honor that, uh, that has been given to her? Well, you know, the PTA members, we can't direct the curriculum. However, we can buy all the children books and materials, and we can have programs to discuss uh, Michelle Obama's legacy, as well as other impactful women of color in our community. So our children can know who, you know, have people to look up to and know that they too can reach their goals. Talking with Maisha Cole, who's president of the PTA at now Michelle Obama Elementary School in Richmond. Do you have any concerns that Five years from now, somebody else will come along and say, oh, we want to change the name to the next first lady. I mean, whoever takes over from Melania Trump, for example. And was that, were those concerns raised? I don't have that concern, and I'll tell you why. The, the name wasn't because of Michelle Obama was the former first lady. The name was changed because Michelle Obama is an inspiration to women across the country. And yes, maybe five or ten years down the line, someone might come around and try to change the name. But what my hope is that by me showing my children this process and all the children in the school, I consider my children, showing them this process and showing them a connection that they won't change the name, that they will push and say, no, 
we wanted this name change and they will not allow some adults to come in in five years and tell them what they should and should not do. My children were an integral part of this process. They went with me to every community meeting. They went with me to every board meeting and they even addressed the board. So I feel like the children who attend the school can continue this legacy. I don't see that anywhere is it written in stone that schools have to keep the same name in perpetuity, even for a certain length of time. It actually seems to make sense to name a school after something that students or someone the students can identify with. So uh, maybe we need to rethink this idea of this is going to be the name of the school forever. That's true. I mean, I think it's a community decision. On that note, talking with Maisha Cole, president of the PTA at Michelle Obama Elementary School in Richmond. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, John, this this whole issue brings back memories of what happened in South Africa when Nelson Mandela became president. I reported closely on that. That was a big issue, whether to rename towns, remove statues, and lots of other aspects of the physical environment named after white Afrikaner heroes. And uh, Mandela initially was opposed to it. He thought there's more important things to do. It costs money. Well, that South Africans needed to be reminded of their past. But I have to say that has changed and the movement in South Africa to remove these symbols of apartheid and racist rule has really accelerated, it's continued. A few years ago, there was a huge move at the University of Cape Town to remove the statue of the arch-colonialist Cecil John Rhodes from the University of Cape Town. And uh, actually, it reminds me of a lot of what's happening in this country. But a complicated issue and a very emotional one. Well, I'm a particularly partial to uh, Thomas Jefferson, but I welcome this discussion. It's a healthy debate and uh, look forward to seeing what happens around the state. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Finsterwald. Stay well. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye.